0: That label that they put on to me in education, it stuck with me, and I think mm-hmm. that was probably for me the biggest catalyst in the internalised ableism I felt as an adult, because I didn't want to be special no more.
1: Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled, and why they're proud to be themselves. Jamie. Welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today?
0: Hello, hello. I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm good. But I will say today has been one of those days where the ableism has abled hard. And I've had to have quite a few arguments with people about things that I just thought were fundamental basic human rights. And clearly that's not always the case. People don't always understand. So I'm good, but I'm feeling a bit burnt out by the ableists. I'm not going to lie.
0: Oh yeah, I think we all get that done, we at least daily, we're faced with it, and it's just like it hits that point where it's like, hold on a second, I need to reset, so you take time for you after this.
1: Oh, do you know what, I can't wait, I've already got my dinner planned, I've <laughs> planned what, like, what bubble bath I'm going to have in my bath, like I've planned it all out, I'm genuinely so excited, but before oh. I get to any of that, I get to have this wonderful conversation with you, which is making my day so much better.
0: Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm excited to be here. So apologies it takes me so long to come, but we got there at the end.
1: Oh, and that's that's what matters. Okay, so oh I'm so happy that you're here. But the first question that I like to ask every single guest on the podcast is how do you refer to your disability?
0: So medical terms, I have ocular albinism with my stigmas. Which is a fun way of saying my eyes tend like to go full of spins, that's my stigmas. And I'm the same as an albino, only with pigmentation. Mm-hmm. I am autistic, I have ADHD, I have back scoliosis, and apparently I disabilities like Pokemon cards. Yeah. Um, but for myself, <laughs> I, I tell people I'm disabled, uh, but mm-hmm. it took me a while to get to that point, if you know what I mean. So I say take personal yeah. disability. And then I was like, what am I doing? This is part of my identity. I want to wear like a badge of honor. So I started saying disabled person after many conflicts. We know some people don't like to say yeah. one and then the other. And it's like, give me the right to choose my identity. Um, but with myself, I think it's got to stage where I sound disabled, but I tell everybody now I'm a registered blind or DHD rhino because rhinos are just chubby unicorns with bad eyesight. If you don't believe that believe that, please Google it. Um they do have bad eyesight. <laughs> um, and then yeah. So that is, in a nutshell, how properly
1: describe myself now. Yeah, I honestly love the fact that you call yourself a rhino because I think that, <laughs> that is just the best thing ever. Like, yeah, chubby unicorn, bad eyesight, but here we are. We work with what we've got. And actually, there's so much to be said in that because working with what you've got like what you've got is what you've got you can't change yeah. what you have and you haven't got so actually if you can make it almost work for you and put your own spin on it I think that's so important
0: 100% and like when I was younger so I'm very openly gay when I was younger it was mm. very obvious to everybody bar me that I was gay and the kids used to say to me where's your unicorn trying to be a bit of a smart arse with me mm. and I was just like I don't know why but I when I seen this book my friend gave me this book and said chubby unicorns And I was just like, rhinos are just chubby unicorns. And see, since that moment, this has stuck with me. So the way as well, I'm like, yes, rhinos technically are disabled, if you think about having bad eyesight. But equally, (laughs) it's just like, it's taking those words that used to hurt me. And it's like, I will have my chubby unicorn at the door.
1: Yeah. And it's almost, it's reclaiming that power as well, which is, which is exactly how I feel about the word "disabled." As I think that I use it because I want to reclaim the power that's in it. Because for so long people saw it as such a bad thing, yeah. and I'm like, no, 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 incorrect. It's one of the most powerful things in the world, and so I I love that reclamation of power and and having that like personal and important mark that you're making on how you identify because at the end of the day, like we all identify completely differently. And and that's why I like to start this podcast with asking people how they want to be identified. Because I think if you get that wrong, then the entire conversation and actually your t- entire experience com- is completely overshadowed by the fact that someone has got this wrong for you. 100%.
0: And like, I think that's one of the biggest things we have in this community, isn't it? It's almost like we have communities inside communities oh, with yeah. all these different ways of identifying. And there seems to be People kind of play the trump cards with it. It's just like, well, I'm yes. saying this, so you should say this too. You're wrong. And I think as content creators, we get it all the time in our posts. It's like, oh, you shouldn't say this. But I think, well, actually, why is the issue on how we want to self-identify mm-hmm. when the real issue is the systemic ableism, the inaccessibility, and the fact that we are treated the mess on but you want to talk about my right to identify? Okay, that seems like <laughs> such a trivial issue when we think of the bigger picture. So I love that you start your your podcast like this.
1: Oh, thank you. So moving on, I always like to think about childhood and disability because I think. It- there can be a real difference between being a disabled child to being a disabled adult. And that's even if you were born disabled or if you acquire your disability, because there's, there's if you acquire your disability, there's a change at some point, like your life changes, it, it, you know, there's a big spin. But if you're a disabled child, what I have tend to found is that childhood is very, very different to adulthood in how people relate to your disability. And I wonder what was that experience like for you?
0: So oh, I... Oh god, my childhood! Like I don't want to say it was traumatic because I've really good supportive parents, and I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a typical Irish family. There's loads of us. Like if you said, "Oh my god, to me too. There's if loads we have of to, us. Yeah, it's like so if somebody says something, it's like I've got my army behind me. Let's go. Yeah. Um, but for me, I, I I was in mainstream education, so I was for mm-hmm. the primary school, and I was a special needs kid, and I do that in very common because that label what they put on to me in education, it stuck with me. And I think mm-hmm. that was probably for me the biggest catalyst in the internalized ableism I felt as an adult. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be special no more. So I just I stopped asking for adjustments. So for me, like I I was bullied quite badly. Like none of the mm-hmm. kids wanted to play with a special needs kid. I had a classroom assistant uh, only in the afternoon. And in class I struggled. Like I was given yeah. special activities to do like rearrange the art supply cupboard, which don't get me wrong, I loved because I always got to play with the markers and paint and I love art. <laughs> but it was, I think, like, when I look back at that as an adult, I'm like, how humiliating for me as a child yeah. to be made to feel so different when I, you know, I, I have the same learning capabilities as most of my peers. In fact, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I could be probably, I don't want to say smarter because I don't like that word, but do you know what I, mean? I I could have been more advanced than some of my peers. But yeah. because I had that label, it was like, well, let's treat him different. Um, so I struggled really badly in school with my disability, and I think that impacted, obviously, my relationships. I was very close mm-hmm. to my siblings, but, like, I didn't really have many friends. And mm-hmm. then as that kind of progressed into secondary school, I actually went to specialist education. Again, this word special, I think, again, triggers my internalised able- ableism. Yeah. Whenever I say it, I feel comfortable, I don't know why. Um, but when it was in secondary school, it was a class of six people and a teacher Mm -hmm. who had been specially trained, which theoretically sounds amazing. And for those Mm -hmm. five to six years, it was kind of because we had an additional year. It was amazing. I got that support, but nobody was teaching me what was going to like when I was leaving education. Nobody told me that I was going to struggle in the world of employment. And equally, nobody was kind of dealing with the fact that I had so much internalized realism. I was Mm -hmm. traveling an hour to school in the morning, an hour back. My friends were walking to school around the corner um I only had a few friends so it was very notice- noticeable that I wasn't in the typical mainstream education like they were yeah so other kids noticed that and picked on me as well so it really made building relationships with non-disabled young people really difficult um mm-hmm. and so like, I think I was a ch- I don't want to say I stayed childlike until quite late on but at 16 I was still playing with Action Man I was still playing mm-hmm. with my sisters in the Barbies because I love cutting yeah. the hairs and ruining them um but, like, I was, I was still five childlike. At 16 now, you know, you think it's a child now at 16, they're sitting out with the friends. I'm not going to the say they're going adults. clubbing. adults. Do you know what I mean? Many adults. Whereas, I think for me, I had so much innocence because I was the special kid. Mm-hmm. So, t- t- I, I, I kind of like to get a rough journey there. But I think when I left education, I just fell off an edge of a cliff um, because I didn't mm-hmm. know how to articulate what I needed because it was always kind of spoon-fed to me. And yeah. I went back into mainstream education. Don't know why, To do A levels in art and Mm -hmm. I got so badly bullied, so I did for those two years and I fell into the wrong crowd. Right, don't say the wrong crowd, because they were nice people, but I started smoking, I started drinking, and then I kind of just started spiraling with my mental health. But yeah. That brings us up to adulthood at 18. So that's another question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I think what you said about, you know, the word special really getting your internalized ableism like almost like starting something in your belly yeah. I think that's a really important thing to say because when we talk specifically talk about education and we talk about special education yeah. and actually the terminology is so wrong for what it is it's it's not special if it's a human need yeah. and I think this is where we we've really fall into quite a trap is that we think special education oh it's, it's extra needs it's extra this that and the next thing and actually we need to have a whole, almost a rebrand because it's not, it's human needs. And if it's a human need, then it's not special because we all have different needs. So I can completely understand why why talking about it can it can give you that feeling because actually upon reflection and also, you know, you're a bit older now, you, you have awareness of what internalized ableism, you have awareness of what ableism is. No wonder it's going to spark those feelings in you. And and thank you for sharing that with me as well, because it's not always easy to talk about difficult topics (laughs) like this. And I do appreciate you sharing that on this podcast, because it's not it's not always the nicest thing to think about and redrag. But actually having these conversations is so important, because as you said, you felt like you were spoon fed for a little bit too long. Yes. And I think this is also a problem that we have with disabled children is sometimes we can be spoon fed for a bit too long because we are seen as a health and safety hazard. People don't know how to treat us. They, they don't know where we're going. They don't know what we're doing. So the, the best thing to do is wrap you in cotton wool and, and hope that nothing okay. on the outside is is going to come in. But actually, like you said, when you went in, back into mainstream education and you get to about 18, 19, actually everything in your life completely changes. And and what you meant to do with that when you haven't necessarily had the support in place to prepare you for those moments
0: 100%. and like it just it leads to The like guy was binge drinking at like mm-hmm. well, 17, 18 now I was binge drinking and it was WKD so it was so it was definitely the most toxic thing I could have been drinking <laughs> yeah. but you know like when I think back and then I stayed in that barrel right through from 18 till my early 20s maybe mid-20s again like 30 mm-hmm. Out oh, years at now, 2023, I'm 33 at the moment. It's weird when you <laughs> over 30 you start forgetting your age, it's terrible. Um, but like right up until I was maybe 25. So it's not even mm. that long ago when I think about that. I was still spiraling and it wasn't really until like I was living independently in the city. So it was like it was I was kind of independent, yeah. but I was still spiraling. And I had so much, I don't want to say shame. But it was shame. It was internalised mm-hmm. ableism. I also rejected the fact that I was gay because I was already disabled. I didn't want to have, to have that coming out twice experience. And mm-hmm. it was very strange. So I was in this real deep spiral. But it wasn't until I kind of um, met my partner and actually got this really constant friend in my life, got my job, where i I'm currently work in yeah. now, that I actually started to feel like, oh, my goodness, is this what independence feels like. And then mm-hmm. it's just like you're, I started speaking and it was like, Oh my God, all these emotions and feelings and things that I didn't actually realize I felt until I started articulating it. And then I'd listen mm-hmm. back and think, oh my goodness, I never really talked about this. Why was there no support? Why, when I've been taken to the doctor to talk about depression or mental health, was there no talk about actually you could be experiencing internalized ableism because it does have a detrimental effect? And actually, yeah. the links and the psychological effects, it's like, well, where was that support? And then when you think of intersectional identities, Obviously, being gay as well from Northern Ireland wasn't the easiest upbringing. Uh, Kids did not like gay guys in Northern Ireland. Um, And I think for me, it was a lot to deal with. But there was no mention of, well, actually, this could be a terrorized ableism. Actually, you could have a terrorized homophobia. Like, there was no mention of it. It's like we know it's there, but we tiptoe around it.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's a really important thing you just said when you were saying, you know, You're talking about you know maybe it's depression maybe it's this and the next thing and and at no point anybody was like actually what about internalized ableism because when we're talking about mental health and I'm pretty sure you posted about this might have been yesterday saying that when we talk about mental health or depression we always need to consider internalized ableism as a catalyst for this because doctors don't have these conversations with us and if you're in therapy you need to find a therapist who understands what a what ableism is and yeah. also what internalized ableism is because i think 9 times out of 10 very very generally speaking a lot of the uh, a lot of the feelings that internalized ableism can can give you are similar to that depression and actually when you unpack it it's not that you're depressed it's actually that you're just experiencing yeah. a systemic problem and that in itself is another problem
0: yeah 100% and nice that's to say you're trapped in a problem with no solution, which is another problem. But then when you try, you, I think as well, I think trying to talk to people who aren't non-disabled, so trying to speak to your parents about it, or mm-hmm. simply to your friends who don't have the lived experience. It's like, well, we don't know what you're doing, you're just depressed, maybe you need to go to see a doctor again. But like, when you let that linger, like I let mine linger for so long. Like I self-harmed, um. I had a, a failed suicide attack, Well, obviously it was failed because I'm sitting here today. <laughs> but I had these experiences that, Mm-hmm. When I look back on now, I'm like, wow, like, who was that person? Like, how far must have I spiral to get to that point? Yeah. And I can remember my mum sitting down in the hospital with me crying when I had had done my silly incident. And the nurse was just like, you know, what's changed with him? And my mum was talking about all the depressants I was on. And they were just like, why is he on these? And then my mum was kind of explaining. And I think me and my mom had a really honest conversation following that. It was like, yeah. well, actually, I have so much self loathing that I'm disabled and I struggled so much and at that stage it wasn't just because I was disabled I had bounced around employment like a yo-yo like I had worked yeah. in every call center nearly of Belfast and I wasn't <laughs> getting the support I had more jobs than hot dinners in my 20s and it was it wasn't through lack of want like I mm-hmm. wanted the job I wanted to develop yeah. but as we know companies talk about how close they are but once you get through the doors it's like well, we actually, this note, yeah, pretty much to like, see you later, bye, good luck, sink a swim, and then four months later or a month later, you're like, I can't do this no more, and then you have to that vicious cycle of a disabled job seeker again. I need support, mm. and trying to get that support is nada.
1: <laughs> and this is such a seamless <clears throat> transition into how disability has or has not impacted your career, because I think at some point, all disabled people regardless of whether it's conscious or unconscious, have to think about their disability when they're thinking about their career. I mean, you and I obviously talk about disability for a good portion of our career, but actually before that, there were still people who were working. And And I was wondering, what was it like having to factor in your disability into your career, but also how did it lead to what you do now?
0: Yeah, so I, as I said, had more jobs than hot dinners. For me, I, I was told by a doctor before that you'll never work in anything other than retail. You'll be stocking shelves. And then when I was in school, like it was around the same time, I had a teacher who was blind himself. Mm-hmm. He was fantastic and he had a guide dog. He'd stand up in the class and the dog would bark. It was the most <laughs> well-trained guide dog I've ever met. But yeah. this teacher told my mum, was like, he's so smart, he could be a lawyer if he wanted to be. And mm-hmm. I always had that in the back of my head. And I think... That kind of belief from one teacher can really, really shape. I think and make a difference. Yeah. And so when the doctor told me that, don't get me wrong, I believed it for a while. But obviously that voice came back back in my head. But mm-hmm. I was working in call center jobs, and I mean roles that I definitely should not have been doing because I was working on a computer all day. I'm registered blind. I have like this tank. I have some sight, but it's like what somebody sees mm-hmm. in twenty meters. I almost have to be four meters close to see exactly what you're seeing. And even yeah. then, I won't get every detail. And the best way to probably describe it is, when you're standing in a fog, you can't see around you that proximity. Mm -hmm. Anything beyond I can't. So that's like what's like my vision. But I was going to these roles and sometimes I wasn't disclosing. I wasn't even saying I'm disabled because I had told somebody before and they weren't giving me the opportunity or get rejected or ghosted. So I would go to these opportunities pretending that I was just like everybody else, that I was Mm non-disabled. And then I would come to the onboarding and I wouldn't be able to do the induction training. And I, was, like, I kind of have to say to the trainer, listen, I'm disabled, I can't actually see. Can you give me a copy of the presentation or can you share it the computer screen? And it was almost like this dirty, shameful thing that I would told yeah. them. And all of a sudden it was just like I was getting special attention in, in, in the training room. Anything that was being delivered it was like, Jamie, can you see this? I was like, listen, I'm ready for blind, no matter how close you put me that board, I'm not gonna see it because it's tiny, <laughs> yeah. right? And like send me a copy or give me a physical copy. Yeah. And it just kept happening. And then I would press it. in some places I would get adjustments and it would take months to arrive. And on mm-hmm. seeing those months to arrive, I was using a bulk down the computer. So like if you're watching me in camera, I was like, this trying to use my computer. It's just my head touching against the screen. Yeah. And that racked my back. And I didn't know until, I only found out recently, I had back scoliosis. And I'm like, that's why my back is so bad. That's why when I move constantly, I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. And I always put myself on just so much strain to see these computers. And then the adjustments would come. But then I would get disciplined for having time off of being sick. Because you can't be sick or yeah. you can't have time off if you're waiting for your adjustments. So it was almost like this vicious catch, 22, where mm-hmm. if I did share, I was penalised for taking time off of being sick or being sore with my back. Or mm-hmm. for mental health, because again, internalized ableism—that mental health element—that really plays in. And when I was mm-hmm. in these jobs, that's when I actually tried to. I, I, I don't know the right way to say this. The, the most sensitive way to say it. So try your word, but that's when I tried to have. That's when I tried to do that silly accent I talked about earlier. Yeah. I don't know the words to say. I apologize. Um, no,
1: but, don't apologize at all because this is your story and how you talk about it is your personal experience. So I would never be like, Jamie, that's wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah,
0: it was it was very strange because I was in the midst of all this employment and I was not feeling any kind of security. Mm-hmm. So I struggled for a long time with employment. And then when I was 28, I'd worked for, I'm not going to say who I worked for because I want to say them, but you can definitely see it in my LinkedIn if you can see it. Um, but I worked for an agency doing quite a big contract they had. Mm-hmm. And in this agency, I, I I had had enough to that point where it's just like I need help, I need support, yeah. and I'd rented them really candidly. It's like, listen, I'm a disabled job seeker. I have my job CV is ter- my CV is terrible, my job history is terrible, but I want to work. I need somebody to give me a chance. And this agency put me into this role, which seemed great at first, but within the first few months, there was an argument between the agency and the client on who's paying for adjustments. And in that time, there was all this office gossip going around that I was dramatic, that I was this disabled, angry person because I was not getting what I wanted. And it was like... Absolutely standard. Yeah, standard. It was just like, I wasn't angry. I was probably, if anything, disappointed. I was more Mm. disappointed because they had promised me the world. And in that time, I had to take, I think it was a month off I had. At one point, I was taking like 27 tablets a day to manage the pain and manage my mental health. And it was, it was terrible. And Mm -hmm. I stuck with it, don't get me wrong. And I stayed there for, like, just over a year, which to me was my world record with employment. But (laughs) it got to the point where that ableism, that systemic ableism was embedded in organisations, it became too much. I was Mm -hmm. being referred to as the blind guy or the blind gay guy. And when I was in calls or in training, it was almost that that specialness, that I special came out. And I'd be like, Jamie, can you see from here? Can you see from here? And I'd be like... I can't see a TV or a sixteen-inch monitor when I'm at the back of the room. I'm like, I'm not gonna see it. Like, stop, please. Mm-hmm. And then it got to the point where my manager started being a bit vicious about my side too, and told me I was using it as a as an excuse sometimes. And I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, said. honestly, I contemplated taking that boy off, but I didn't because it was obviously quite complex when it's an agency and a client. Just, yeah, there was a lot of cluster. there. But I left, and at that point, I was that I was broken. It was like during mm-hmm. the summer I was broken and i seen this post online from a friend and it said, um, customer service experience. And I was like, I have that. I have customer service experience. Mm-hmm. And I applied for this job. And obviously having a friend, they were probably, don't want to say went right in my favour, but they were able to kind of give me a heads up on yeah. what to do for the interview. So I applied and somehow got a job in recruitment, which to me was just like, hi, in God's green air for my head. i was <laughs> on the side of the table. And... I, I hadn't really shared with them during the interview that the, how severe my disability actually was because mm-hmm. I, I always like to sugarcoat it. Um, I don't know why, but I always try to sugarcoat what well, I did in the past. And in mm-hmm. the interview, I didn't really tell them, but when I was in the job, it was very noticeable that I'm disabled. Like, I'm using my, mon- my laptop, but I was like this, I was so mm-hmm. close to it. And my manager pulled me aside one day. She's like, Do you need a monitor? Let's get you some support. And then we built this relationship where I was actually able to start sharing with them. And I started telling them about my disability and before I knew it I was talking on panels about my disability I joined an mm-hmm. ERG and for the first time in like, I think 28 years of my life I felt like what it was like to be to feel belonging in the workplace yeah. something I'd never been and I'm still with that company today but I think what they they did is I always said I felt like Ariel I came in here with no voice I had no confidence about what I still and I thought I was gonna be that job just for a couple of months to get me back to Christmas Four years later, it was actually my anniversary this week, four years later and I'm still here. So it's like, I, I, it's almost like this 360 moment where it's just like this thing that you've seen as a weakness or this thing that has impacted you for so long, your mental health, this eternal ableism. My career is now built on being a disability accessibility lead. It's sharing my lived experiences. I have a side hustle on the side, talking about disability. And it's just like, it's almost like again, a cash 22, I love that thing. Um, because mm-hmm. if I didn't go through what I did, I wouldn't be where I am today but equally if I if, I don't know where I'd been if I didn't go through what I did
1: yeah and it, and it is such a catch-22 and it's also quite unpopular to say that actually sometimes through hardship whilst it is shit and it is terrible and it is not fun it can be character building and actually at the end of it you usually find that you have either built something around yourself or there's something about you that you've pulled out from it that's actually really beneficial you know later on in life but actually it's like it's so interesting because from from what I've listened to in your story you had one teacher who really believed in you and then you had someone at work who really believed in you and it just goes to show that sometimes you just need that one person to fully have your back and really pull you out because that's the thing, isn't it? A good portion of disabled people get judged inherently by how they look, how they speak, and how they act. Yeah. And we need those people who fully support us to be like, actually, know they're way more than how they look, th- or how they look, how they speak, how they present. Because if you didn't have that, where would you be now? But equally, I'm so glad you did have that, because now we're here having this conversation. Exactly. So.
0: And it's like, honestly, I, I always tell my mom, I'm like, I feel like this little fish She was a little stream who managed to like hop, over a fit, uh, hop over a wall into the ocean. And it's just like, wow, is this what it's like to kind of... I don't want to say successful, because I wouldn't say I'm successful, because until I have my own house and things, I, I'm not considering myself successful. But I yeah. think I'm successful in the sense that that confidence that I think mm-hmm. so many disabled people struggle to get, to attain even that kind of grip on what how to manage to talk about their entire able- ableism, mm-hmm. so many of us struggle with that their whole lives. I've had um older generation people tell me that, oh, you will forget about ableism because you just get on with it. And I'm like, I don't want to ever get to that point where I've had the break because I've seen what burying it does. I mm. want to be somebody who is known to have challenged it at every single opportunity, which is why I don't forgive it now. And like I know people don't learn about this, and which is why I always come from a positive place. Don't get angry at people because it's not that they don't know. Yeah. But I think sometimes that anger because I had so much anger that residual anger was my biggest motivator and it's completely changed who I am and the confidence I have it's, yeah. it's strange so I'd be privileged because I know not many of us get to go through that
1: yeah what I like though what you said is about ignorance is that sometimes you don't know what you don't know and it's not until someone shows you Absolutely. a better way you still won't know and actually rolls really nicely into what your side hustle is talking about disability because I am obsessed with the whole. So let's just pause, recap, rewind. We'll talk about Instagram because this is the social media channel that I think Mm -hmm. about the most. So inherently it's inaccessible for the vast majority of people because of, you know, there's no ID captioning. There's no alt text unless you really search for alt text. But equally, people don't know how to do that. Yeah. So this brings me on to what do you do on your side hustle?
0: Oh, God. So I I think I do more than I realise. So I initially, I started out speaking as a side hustle. So I was, my mm-hmm. full-time job was about AMS and this disability inclusion. Uh, sorry, disability accessibility ERG lead, which is such a mouthful. Um, <laughs> and I was asked to speak at the side of that after, from doing a podcast in the past and I started doing speaking gigs with companies talking about accessibility Mm. and then it kind of led on to well do you know what this is actually great that I'm actually able to talk about this because I started finding it really therapeutic and now it's turned into consulting, it's turned into training, Mm. it's turned into speaking to like global audiences and who I generally set and touch myself with or leading conferences that are being keynote speakers and I'm like I'm from Belfast and I'm sitting here talking to an organization in Florida about disability accessibility or I'm supporting a charity um, in Texas. and taxes. I'm, and I'm, I'm sitting in Belfast from my home. So yeah. my side hustle, I think, started as me speaking. um And then it, that all stemmed from content creation. I just yeah. I started creating content. And I don't know why. I, I like graphics. I like things being really simplified. I think because I'm new mm-hmm. to version. It's just like, oh, I can grasp my hand around it or it'll stick yeah. to me. Um, So, I started creating graphics and that content creation just exploded my world. So, it did. Like, Mm -hmm. I got so many opportunities through it. Like, I spoke with LinkedIn on their disability panel last year. I recorded the the first ever LinkedIn creator program in the UK. Um, And then that just led to like opportunities that, honestly, like, I'm trying to think at the top of my head, ADHD is like, "Ah, I think it works. Um, But, like, it was just the network that has opened up for me. Like, yeah. I'm from Belfast. When you think about Belfast, we're, we're part of the UK, but we're very much not part of the UK because we have our own standing government. We haven't mm-hmm. been government in a long time. That's a whole different side of conversation. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we are historically kind of just a little island and, oh, Northern Ireland's lovely, yay. But, to have your voice in such a global audience. And like, mm-hmm. how did this happen? Like, because I, I still have my speech in from when I was a kid. I still go on to calls and panic or get flustered or take people on such random d- journeys down rabbit holes. But my side hustle has, from then has suddenly just changed all that. So it of has. So yeah. I don't know how it happened, but I'm very privileged. I, and I generally feel really privileged where my life has brought me to now.
1: Yeah. I would love to, if it's okay with you, talk about. ADHD, because yes. for you, it wasn't necessarily something that you were diagnosed with early on. And I wonder what was it that made you actually want to go for a diagnosis of ADHD and then autism, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah.
0: So it was, I got diagnosed as an adult. So I was officially diagnosed this year, mm. but had self diagnosed from last year. And it was, Again, AMS, like the company I work for full time, uh-huh. I feel like I owe them like, a lot, so much. Um, but they had a neurodiversity ERG, which is employee resource group, and they had been hosting sessions around ADHD and what that looked like and what that felt like and the different kind of variations of experiences. And I can remember sitting there thinking... It's, that, that sounds like me. Like that really, mm-hmm. really sounds like me. And I don't know if anyone watches me on camera. I fidget so, so much. And that was my first telltale. Yeah. The person was saying, oh, you fidget loads or you have kind of tr- trouble focusing on things or you'll hyperfixate. And I was sitting going, oh, my God, this person's talking about me. And it just kept getting worse and worse. Well, when I say mm-hmm. worse, more things I could relate to. So I had a complete meltdown panic. And I spoke to my manager, um, who I will shout out because she was absolutely brilliant, Rebecca Collis. She kind of had a conversation with me at the time and she's just like well what are you, why are you worried about this like why would you be worried about ADHD kind of thing and I was just like Cause I'm ready to say but like I I, I don't know how to comprehend yeah. that in my head because when you realise you're neurodivergent or you get that official diagnosis it's like you get this key to your past and obviously when you're disabled get ready to scrutinize your past you have the trauma mm-hmm. like almost like a room full of the cases that you can take down and unpack at any given <laughs> yeah. time and I was going through these cases going, oh my God, this this makes sense for this situation. Oh my mm-hmm. God, is that it wasn't just maybe that I was disabled, maybe because I am autistic or I am ADHD that I struggled to build those relationships yeah. or I struggled with social cues. So for me, it was it was that conversation with my manager who really encouraged me to go for my diagnosis. And I'm in Northern Ireland, and again, not exactly part of the UK. Uh we are part of the UK, but we don't get the same kind of rights. So in the mm-hmm. mainland, you have um right to choose. So you can choose who does your diagnosis for you. We don't have yeah. that in Northern Ireland. On our wait list, I was told it was six years. So if I wanted an assessment, I would have to wait six years. Unfortunately, with my side hustle, which again is mm-hmm. just the privilege that I've had from it, was I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this payment and the money I've gotten from my side hustle, and I'm going to pay for my diagnosis because I needed the answer. I and it's not even that I needed the paper to say this is it. I feel like it was like I just needed somebody to verify it because I was telling people I think I'm I'm self-diagnosed ADHD but I didn't have a suspicion about the autism yeah. but the night before the assessment I was saying to my partner I was like what happens if they tell me I'm autistic because I've, t- I've prepared myself to be ADHD but I'm not yeah. prepared myself that I could be autistic and when the um assessor at the end of it they're not meant to tell you straight away but this person told me at the end they were like you're definitely um, ADHD, but I, I, I'm i also very highly suspect that you're autistic. And mm-hmm. she made the referral of my autism assessment a few months later. And I mean, I fell down a rabbit hole of research. I was yeah. following, reading, listening to every podcast. By the way, a lot of the information around root divergence is so inaccessible because yeah. I think people fall into this trap where they think, oh bright colours and these fun designs will attract neurodivergent folks mm-hmm. when really if you're somebody with intersecting disabilities it's very limited resources there
1: yeah and
0: I think I then got that diagnosis but I think what made me go for them both it was like again I had the privilege to do so and mm-hmm. it was like it was like getting an answer for a lot of the things that I put on to myself like I've always been very hard on myself like if I facing ableism or inaccessibility or somebody says something or I lose a job I was the person who all that blame went on to I didn't blame the people around me it was yeah. I blamed myself and now that I look back and I'm like wow that was that rejection sensitivity that was the ADHD this is the autism coming in mm-hmm. and then there was like when you think about the challenges you face and how you handle them or how you react there's times that I will react to things and it will be the most explosive reaction and I'll sit back after and be like, why did I react like that? And then I realise, wait a second, that's just my, I'm not able to regulate my emotions the way everybody else yeah. is able to. So I think for me, there's an intersect with it, which is really like, oh, I've got the answer. But equally, it's almost like, oh, wow, this is this is like almost fighting with my being registered blind. It's like, this mm-hmm. is affecting this and this triggers that. So I took, and I'm probably still on the journey and I, I don't really talk about neurodivergence, my neurodivergence online at the moment, and it's because yeah. I thought I had a grasp on it and the more mm-hmm. you kind of get into it, the more you kind of learn and you're constantly like reading what other people are doing to kind of support themselves. And I think when you have those insect disabilities, it's hard because nobody is talking about being registered blind and neurodivergent yeah. or what works to them because all the resources like get it, get this book it's brilliant and you get it you can't read it because it's inaccessible or oh, there's no yeah. audio book so it's it's trying to get the resources to support but I think I'm glad I did it um yeah but I think it's it's gonna be a journey I'm gonna be on for a while before I get to the point with my eyesight. Like I can talk about my sight if the sun comes home to the <laughs> yeah. sun comes home and I can articulate about it. But when it comes to neurodivergence I talk about it and then I find myself after going Is that how I feel about that? Or how do I articulate that better? So Um, it's still a journey. I think we're all on the journey, aren't we? We're all evolving constantly.
1: But I think that that's also a really beautiful space to be in because actually, Mm -hmm. yes, they're inaccessible and that isn't fair. But equally, like, you might now be able to create something that's accessible for someone else. And, you know, here's here's the thing. I always think of this, like, as much as you think you're the only version of yourself or, like, you know... For me, like I always, not always, but I think, how many other 100 people do I know? And and the list is not really that long. So no. when I think about myself, I'm like, oh, there's not very many of us. But actually, there are thousands and thousands oh, and thousands of us. I just don't personally know them. So actually, it's good to just turn up and be that person that's there because you don't know who you're going to be inspiring. But particularly for you, like you don't know who else you're going to help with you, the content that you're creating and, and the things that you can make and do. And I think, actually, yes, it's annoying. And yes, it's very much a journey, but you, you really have the chance to create something there. And that's an incredible space to oh, be
0: 100%. in. 100%. And as I say with my little experience, it's just like, I think that's been the motivator for all my work. Like when somebody's mm-hmm. like, when we ask, what's the problem with this recruitment process or what can we do to be more inclusive? It's just like you look at it through the eyes of your own disability and then you get somebody else who's disabled to also show their eyes. And it's just like, when you start bringing all those different voices to the table, it's like, oh, hold on a second, the solution's here, we just haven't been listening to the solution and that's the problem I think as society in general and with workplaces is that they don't listen to the voices of lived experience which is why I'm such an advocate of employee resource groups because without AMS's resource group I wouldn't have known I was neurodivergent, I wouldn't be standing talking about my disability and nearly four years later I would be standing talking on this podcast or having a career that I do as a side hustle so it's, I think it's it's empowering for an individual to be part of that community because mm-hmm. many of us don't know it exists or there's groups of charities that we get involved in, but it doesn't go beyond that maybe meeting every so often or that residential. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's having that yes. constant.
1: Do you have a piece of advice for a younger version of you? So if <laughs> Jamie from like 20 years ago is sat with you having, like, having this conversation, is there a piece of advice that you would give him
0: so to this question makes me think of my nephew my nephew has the same genetic condition I have so my condition's hereditary women pass it on to the son so when I see the questions beforehand I kept thinking to my nephew it's like what would I say to my nephew because he has all this to come um yeah and I think for me it is oh god this is heart this is really hard um it's around internalized either this, and I think it's having find that power to talk about how you're feeling because, as mm. disabled young people, we're often told how we're feeling. We're wrapped yeah. up in that cotton wool, as you said earlier. or I say bubble wrap, you're like the bubble wrap, you pop. Yeah. I thought like that's why it's wrapped up. So, I think it's have the confidence to say, Stop, let me talk. This is how I actually feel. Because a lot of decisions that was made for me in my life, and my mom is amazing, so I don't want my mom to listen to this and think, oh my God, this is me. I'm not talking about you. It was <laughs> the teachers. It was the educators. It was the yeah. social workers who made the decisions for me in education. They never listened to what I had to say. Mm. Or the teacher who used to make me do that special work. Um, I think it's use your voice. Talk about yeah. how you feel. And if that person doesn't listen, find somebody else to listen. Because you will find that one person who will stop and say, hold on this isn't right, let me speak mm-hmm. on your behalf, and because that's when your allyship comes in, and that's how you know you find that one person to support you, and again, it goes back to having that one teacher, that one person who believes in yeah. you, and the difference it can make, so I would say open up, and for me, personally, for meals, it would be, it's okay to get emotional and cry, because I was always told you couldn't, crying makes you gay, well, <laughs> I must have cried an awful lot, but I definitely <laughs> did, but I don't think I think it's being able to talk about emotions, whether you're male, mm. female, trans, non-binary, being able to have that conversation is such a is such an apparent thing.
1: Yeah. And I love that as well. Like find your voice and be able to use it. Because I think you're so right, especially as disabled children, you are so often told how to feel, how to think, how to do. Like I remember someone telling me how to hold a yogurt pot. Oh my God. And I was like <laughs> that you teaching me how to hold a yogurt pot is, is literally not going to change my life like i'm gonna hold it however i need to hold it this is not a this is not a physiotherapist type vibe like i don't need to have this from you but but it's so true you're so told how to how to navigate this world and actually like learn to use the power of your own voice and navigate it for yourself is yeah. is so invaluable i
0: understand because that's basically most of the advice people are following is medical model you know if we yeah. look at the healthcare system it's entirely built off the medical model education system is built off it but I, I, can, I can slowly see it push towards the social model of mm-hmm. how we should educate and how we should talk about disability or, or being disabled but I think when you're getting advice from teachers who know so little about disability bar mm-hmm. probably a training they did a couple of years ago on a course they went away for I think having that voice it's, it's just so important and we see it in workplaces don't we we see these yeah. employee resource groups we see employees now openly talking about disability and yes it's probably an tokenistic that they're doing milestone moments across the year but I'm like mm. at least we're seeing that representation and I think having that voice heard at least that representation because I wish somebody would have said and I know my mum tried but she's not disabled she didn't understand yeah. and she tried to as much as she wanted but she would never understand and I wish somebody would have said what do you need how do you feel about being disabled because Mm -hmm. nobody ever really did
1: as we've already touched on through hardship there can be some good twinkly sparkly moments at the end of it and I was wondering on reflection of looking back through your own hardships that you've been through is there a positive trait that you've noticed about yourself that actually you're quite proud of
0: um oh god that's a hard question that's a really hard question I think I didn't know and I know it's probably a silly response but I I probably didn't realise how strong I was Mm -hmm. I used to consider myself quite a weak person like when you grow up you can't cry because you're gay or you need to be masculine or you need to be more butch uh, but you can't actually like I couldn't play sports the teacher used to he used to make me throw a basketball into a bin and when I say throw it in the bin was in front of me I dropped it down and uh, my classmates <laughs> played all got in sports and it was like, oh I can play those sports, I can play games obviously we just need to find a ball that makes noise before it hits me off the face but yeah. I, I can join in um, but I was always told, even by teachers that teacher told my mum that I wasn't but uh, I wasn't masculine enough and if I didn't man up that I was going to get bullied I was being bullied so it didn't matter if I manned up or not yeah. um, so for me I think it was the strength because I had so much strength obviously to make, I think any disabled young person who makes through education you are stronger than you think because we made it through and then i think being a disabled job seeker the strength and determination that it takes to continuously go despite the rejections despite being ghosted Mm -hmm. despite being told it's not your disability but you the last thing you told them was you're disabled i think the strength to keep going through that but equally the, the internalized ableism side like, mm-hmm. when I say I had so much time, I can't even tell people I was disabled. I would get in fights physically with my family. Or my parents would be saying I never a disability. I would slam doors, I would yeah. throw things. Like, it was like my emotions kicked too much. So that even get to the point now where I talk about disability and to make it through those challenges where I did try to end my life but my mum and dad were beside me and my siblings, mm-hmm. I think the strength to have for my family as well. So for me, it's a strength that I never knew that I would have.
1: Yeah. Oh, Jamie, I just want to like so you, <laughs> no, I just want to give you like a big hug because I love everything that you said because I think it's so poignant and particularly <clears throat> when we're talking about internalized ableism, I really don't think people realize how much it affects disabled people, no. and and it's 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 such a. It's such an awkward conversation, right? It's not nice to have these conversations. But if we don't have them, who else is going to suffer because we didn't have the guts to have these conversations? Absolutely. And I just, I really want to thank you for sharing these experiences because I know that it's not easy to talk about these things. And and it's, it's horrible, but equally in equal measurements, heartwarming to hear about these stories because you're not there now. Yeah. But equally, you have that lived experience where you can talk about it and be like, you know what? It is really shit. It's not ideal at all. But actually, we can have these conversations. We can talk about it, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's awkward. We need to be having them because there's going to be someone who hears this and is like, that's me. I'm not the only one. And that's like, we will never know that that person's heard it. But actually, like we've done our jobs as as like good disabled as, as good disabled people. But I Let's also equally people. hate the phrase "good disabled pe- person." That's anyway, right. so it's
0: better than an angry disabled person at least.
1: Oh, um, so so true.
0: And like I agree with that one hundred percent. And I think that's what that's why I like create my content as well. Like I think even if I my side hustle, if I invent something, or whenever something happens with my business where I suddenly mm. blow up or I get really. I get money to buy my own house because that's what I want. I want my own house, and so I want to have a yeah. garden for my dogs. That's all I want in life uh, <laughs> and, to enjoy, it and to enjoy what I'm doing. But I think if I ever get to a point where I don't content create, I would be so sad because for me, my content, like that one person who comments on so it or that one person who reaches out, that connection, knowing that your content has helped somebody or mm-hmm. knowing that the graphics that you've made is helping classrooms in America or different places, it's like, that's the difference. One person seeing yeah. that will make a difference. Because I wish, again, when I was younger, I just wish one person would have came along and said the same to me or shown me some of my graphics because it probably would have completely changed my little mind.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like literally exactly exactly that point. Oh gosh, oh, I stick. love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so I love having these conversations so much. But let's let's make it a little bit more light hearted now. Yes. Because I always think as disabled people, we get asked some quite bizarre questions about how our bodies work. And it doesn't matter like what your disability is, people are always curious as to how things work. So I I always say that the weirdest question that I consistently get asked is, has a shark bitten your arm off? And that is because I think when I was younger, it was around about that time that the surf the girl who went in surfing in Australia and, and she did get her arm bitten off by mm. a shark, right? So, like, that was like the famous story like, oh, all one handed girls, all of them, like a shark bit their arm off. And, and I always think, actually, like, we, I live in England, which means England is an island, but there are no sharks around England. And it would have been front page news and you would have seen my face. Now, I have not been front page news and you haven't seen my face. So, the likeliness is that I did not have my arm bitten off by a shark. <laughs> But when it comes to these weird and wonderful questions, I find that there's quite often a few that are always repeated. And I wondered, do you have a particular set that are consistently repeated for you?
0: Oh, I always get, where's my guide dog? Where's your guide dog? Oh, where's your cane? All right, can you see this? And then they give you the middle finger and say... I have sight in front of me. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, if you if you take a few feet back, maybe I won't see you. But yeah, that one that's probably the one that annoys me most is, "Can you see us and give me a finger?" It's like, yeah, you're flipping me off as you ask me a question, and it's just like <laughs> at times I have to turn around and go, "Oh no, I can't see that." Just appear out of spite because I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to dignify your rudeness with a, with a response. But equally, there's times where I blew up because again my emotions don't regulate. So I think. Yeah those ableist there's such ableist questions this is like one disabled person is like another and we're all disabilities it's one binary thing and I always one that I really probably don't like and get all the time is you don't look disabled and -hmm. I'm like well what what am I meant to look like because as I said checked disabilities like Pokemon cards if I was going to be a representative of all these disabilities what am I meant to look like because there's no there's no handbook for me to follow so you tell me how I should look and I'll come back dressed as well how about that like it's, yeah, it's just ableism at its finest, and I think it comes from that concept of people don't learn about ableism, they don't learn about the diversity of disability. We're also conditioned by one simple, which is that wheelchair simple, which is on bathroom doors, is on bumper stickers, is on boots. Mm-hmm. And it's like this simple is meant to represent this diverse community, but represents only seven percent of that community because only is it seven, is it seven, percent? Yeah, it's yeah. So it's just like. Well, what about the other ninety three percent of first leg like, worked? I don't need a symbol. I'm not saying we need different symbols, but like people are so conditioned to see disability as one thing, and so when you show, when you show up as your authentic self, and they're like, "Well, that doesn't match my stereotype." Yeah, but all that is is ableism coming out. It's just like if we educated that, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in today.
1: <laughs> exactly that point. I only have one final question for you, Jamie, and I think I know the answer. But I'm going to ask it anyway, and that is, Jamie, are you disabled and proud?
0: Oh, I'm disabled. I'm so fudging pride. <laughs> <laughs> and I think anyone who doesn't feel... There will be days where you don't feel proud. Don't get me wrong, there's days mm-hmm. I you're not, but I will have an argument myself. Or I'll knock you out of bed and my ADHD history will kick in. It's like pure rejection sensitivity disorder. Uh, disorder pure rejection sensitivity. <laughs> or I have just almost like an outsider who's like, nope, you're not doing anything today. There's days mm-hmm. where I'm not proud, but... Am I proud? I'm so proud because I think being disabled is more than your condition or if you call it an apartment, whatever you call it, whatever that way it identifies, it's mm-hmm. more than that. It's the determination that we have to navigate a society that disables us every day, a society that is so systematically ableist, but we still show up time and time yeah. again and most of the time with the smile on of this or words to say, but we still show up.
1: Yeah, Jamie, I have absolutely loved this conversation. And I know I've said thank you before, but I'm going to say again, because you've spoken about some really heavy topics for you. And I know it's not always easy to talk about these things. So I really want to thank you for sharing your story on this podcast, because I think, as I said, like, we don't know who it's going to help, but it will help someone. And that's invaluable. And actually having these conversations all the time just make me so happy because it makes me realize that the world is changing for disabled people. And like, it's so nice to think that maybe we're a small part of that change. And thank you so, so much for coming on
0: no thanks neither honestly it's like therapy sessions we talk about this and I don't think I've ever talked about that in a podcast before I think I've ever maybe alluded to it so it's the first time I've been that open so you got you got me singing like a canary bird so thank (laughs) you for giving me the therapy session
1: (laughs) it's all right next time I'll charge (laughs) okay no problem (laughs) no but honestly thank you so much for coming on and thank you so much for giving up time in your day to have these conversations i've loved it and it's been wonderful thank you so so much
0: thank you so much
1: thanks for listening to this episode of disabled and proud if you've enjoyed the show then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts it really helps us to reach more and more people each week plus if you've got a particular highlight then i'd absolutely love to hear it tag me on your insta stories at disabled and proud podcast